Good morning, Providence Church. And in these times, how great is it to be a part of a church family, to have brothers and sisters who are anchored in Christ Jesus. And even though our circumstances are maybe not the way we would want them, uh, we delight in the grace we've received uh, from God and the hope that we have in the completed work of Jesus. You know, I was reading 2 Corinthians 4 this week and uh, shared with some of the others on the team, uh, Paul, who had his share of afflictions and unforeseen challenges in the ministry, wrote those Corinthians and said, we do not lose heart. And I hope you can say those words today, again, as you looks like we're going to be in this pattern of disruption for quite some time, that you can say, we do not lose heart because we have the ministry of the Lord Jesus by the mercy of God. So may we press on as a church family. Remember that while there are our various challenges, that that's always an opportunity uh, when it comes to our faith, that we can point others to the, to the, the great news, the good news of Jesus, and, and uh, that, we, again, we have that firm foundation. So as you know, we, our church is in Lorraine County, which means we have a whole new set of regulations that started uh, a couple of days ago. And because of that, we're watching it very closely. And remember, we, our first order of allegiance is to God's word, that we believe there's a divine law and that we want to obey God before we obey human beings when those two conflict. At the same time, when the divine law is not in play, that we want to be good citizens, that we think that the scriptures teach that in places like Romans 13, to always uh, be a blessing to uh, our communities and to, again, win as many as we can for the kingdom of Christ. So those things being said, friends, may we not lose heart. May we worship the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth. Know that you're prayed for, that you're missed, and we long for the day when we can safely assemble again. So here's Pastor Ian with our call to worship. turn the mic on. Uh, church, good morning to you. I pray you've had a wonderful week. Um, and Paul, in his reflection of the end of the Psalter in Philippians 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So let's do that together as we worship our King. of God and King, lift up your voice with a sing, oh praise him, hallelujah, the burning sun with golden Find 
As we continue to let the word of Christ prompt us to worship the triune God. Uh, let's look at Psalm chapter 40, just verses 1 through 11. Uh, we'll read it together as you are able at home. Let's read. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. And set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And in verse 6 here, the New Testament reveals that this is speaking of Christ. And in fact, we could read it as if Christ is speaking to the Father. So let's read in verse 6. In sacrifice and offering... You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. 
How wonderful that in these times we have one who has faithfully declared who the Father is and has displayed himself fully in the Son. God has set our feet upon the rock, the solid rock, on which we stand. His name, Christ the Lord. on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name. When darkness fails, his love me face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking This coffin in his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives away, even as all my open Come with trumpet sound, oh may I then and be found dressed in his righteousness alone, unless you stay before the throne. Providence family and any visitors who may be listening to us online. Would you please join me as we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer? I will begin with a few verses from Psalm 145, starting in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. 
All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Father, we stand in awe of you at your goodness, at your mercy, at your love. You spoke and the world became. You gave us earthly life. You are love. You provided eternal life through the humble sacrifice of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion and resurrection, so that all who repent, confess their sins, and acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior will be with you in eternity, Father. We thank you for being the bridge of Christ to do what we could not do for ourselves. God, encourage us to be the salt and light that this world needs at this time, Father. Lord, we come to you now with some praises and some prayer requests for our church. Lord, we pray for Kim Lucarelli, who this week was diagnosed with this coronavirus, Father. I pray you can heal her body, encourage her and her husband, Lou, as they fight this battle, Lord. And give doctors wisdom about any treatment that Kim needs and just encourage her in your word and let her turn even more to you than she has. We lift up Emily Watson's grandfather, Doug, who was recently hospitalized, Lord, with some challenges, Father. God, we pray you can renew his strength, that the doctors can determine the best course of action for him. And also, Father, we pray for his spiritual state, Lord, that um, people can speak into his life, Lord. Surround Emily and the rest of her family, and especially your grandfather, Doug. We praise you this week for some successful surgeries within our church, Lord. Continue to heal the bodies and minds of those who have gone through um, surgeries this week. We lift up loved ones in our church who I know are struggling with um, tough pregnancies or have lost a father or a mother or a husband recently, Lord. Continue to comfort them and give them the peace that only comes through Christ, Father. We pray for those who also have uh, people in this congregation, sisters or children, Lord, that are struggling with um, challenging situations or health situations, God. Um, we know that you work for all good for those who love you to your glory, Father. So, God, we just pray, let us trust in your plan. We also pray for those in our congregation who are concerned about their jobs, who have maybe lost their jobs, Lord, in this tougher economic environment, Lord. Let them know that you have counted the hairs of their head. You know how to provide for them, and let them just trust you that you will continue to provide for them. Father, we also lift up our, our staff in these challenging times as they're deciding um, how to worship you, Lord, in glory to you, Father God. Give them wisdom, give them patience, continue to give them endurance to do the creative work that needs to be done so you are glorified and that we continue to love you more, Father, and adore your son even more. We pray for the ministries of our church, from international students to youth to children to um, those who have graduated from college, Lord, to our men's and women's ministry and others, God. Continue to give leaders wisdom about how to lead in these uncertain times, Father God. And let us just more and more trust in your perfect timing and goodwill. 
We pray for visitors to our church. We pray for new members. Help all to still feel a love of this congregation, Lord, even though we're not seeing each other on a regular basis, God. And Father, in these tough times with this virus and uncertain racial times, Lord, we lift up those leaders who are making decisions, God. Help their hearts to turn to you, Father, and to your Son, Jesus Christ, because that is where all wisdom comes from. We lift up our police officers, firefighters, military people, our first responders, our health care workers, Lord. Continue to protect them, Lord. Help them to know the peace of Christ as they go and do their work to protect us as a country. And, Father, as I conclude, Paul, as he ended up in his letter to the Thessalonians, said, Rejoice always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is your will in Christ Jesus. Let us be a church that prays more fervently, Father, and trusts you even more in these times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now, church, if you would please join me, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. And if you are able, and at home, if you can please stand in reverence to God's word. So I'll be starting again, chapter 4 of Luke, verse 31. And he, came, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And every report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose." So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Thanks be to God's word. Well, as we continue on in Luke, that this particular passage has us thinking about authority. 
Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about authority. I mean, maybe your mind goes to governments or maybe something closer to tyranny or maybe even arrogance. But I think if we just pause a moment, we say, well, authority's everywhere. Uh, it's impossible, really, to get together with other people and not have some concept of authority. And I think maybe the best way to think about this is to see the relationship between the word authority and author that we can see those come from a very similar root or the similar root and, and to author something simply means to, to have control over it, to dictate a bit uh, as to how it goes. And that's what we have uh, uh, Jesus as presented as here, someone of supreme authority. Now we know that in human authority that all of us by virtue of being human, there's no doubt there are better and worse uh, people uh, to come and go with authority, but all of us, all human actors, all human authors fail. That our own selfishness, right, a, a bit of ourselves always gets in the way and we tend to stomp all over people or have an eye out to ourselves. that there's no such thing as perfect human authority. Yet at the same time, we realize we, we all exercise a bit of it at different times in our life. I remember having this debate about you know, different spheres of authority. And I, some would say, well, I don't know if that's true that everybody has authority at some point in our lives. And I say almost all of us do in our jobs, in our families, with our children, uh, wherever it may be, say some of us, all of us at some times in our lives are going to have some responsibility and have to exercise authority in those domains. But the question is, where do we know, how do we know what to do? Is there an example is there a source of, shall we say, pure authority that both shows us the way how to act, how to gently bring those along, and also to give us the strength to lead competently? And I think if we're honest, we say, well, when those in authority don't really believe that there must be someone as a pure example or some kind of standard, a moral standard, say that is very dangerous indeed that the best people, when they're given a lot of earthly responsibility, it's those who understand that they too are under authority, namely, probably, hopefully, under the authority of God, say then they're able to rightfully exercise um, you know, their responsibilities over other people. But when people are given authority and they don't recognize anyone beyond themselves, say those kinds of leaders are very dangerous. And I think if m many of us recognize that, we're honest, I think we go back to that last song that we sung about the solid rock. Say so we go so far in life and as we go, we have more and more responsibilities and the pressure mounts and it can feel that we're on the sinking sand, that we're out there on some kind of desert island and there's no place to plant our feet, that we're, we're out there. Say, so where's, the, where's my example? Where's the strength to lead in this time and place? And say the scriptures are clear, right? That there is an authority, there is a solid rock. There's one who's not only a pure example, but one who gives us the strength, one who's the model, one to kind of hang everything else on. And that's the Lord Jesus himself. And that's what Luke wants us to see in this section of chapter four. Now a bit of context. Remember how Luke starts his gospel, that this is no mere myth. I don't know about you, but we've kind of said this the last few weeks, that people say, well, you know, all that stuff about the Christian faith 2,000 years ago, that's all made up. It's, it's like a fairy tale. We say those who say that are, we're letting them off the hook way too easily. Say, if we read the opening of Luke, he's pleading with us as a careful historian, a very good Greek grammarian, he's saying, I've looked at all the accounts and I'm pleading with you to take this seriously. I've checked it and I presented this material to you as the impression that Jesus made on his immediate followers. 
And then you have something like we saw in chapter 3, a human genealogy of 76 names. So those who say this is just myth, you say not at all. This is Greco-Roman biography from a credible source saying this is who Jesus is. And Luke says this Jesus is the God-man. That in 322, remember, at Jesus' baptism, the voice comes down from heaven. The Father says, this is my son, my chosen instrument, the second person of the Trinity, right, who's existed eternally, took on a human nature and walked around Galilee. Say, so that's the great message of, of Christianity, or part of it, right, that God, the God of the universe, right, sent his son in human nature to put it on display. How do we know God's serious, that he's not just a philosophical concept, some kind of uh, metaphysical, uh, you know, conjured up notion? Because God sent his son into the world in the flesh, put himself on display, and died a horrible death and was raised bodily from the dead to say, look at how serious I am about reconciling sinners and rebels to myself. And this is what Luke's saying, that this Jesus is the God-man. He's the son of God, but he's fully human. And then you remember that wonderful temptation scene. Well, wonderful from our perspective, that wherever we have failed, that Jesus succeeded that he's the one that stays faithful to his father. And because of that, say we can latch on to him and find strength in him. And then, of course, last week we say Jesus begins his ministry and his message is for all people. And so today we see just how much authority does Jesus have. Now, starting kind of, you see there are three sections in the, in the passage we have today. The first 31 to 37 uh, shows us that Jesus has authority over spiritual matters. I know what you're thinking when you read this. We're introduced to a concept that makes us modern people kind of squirm in our chair a bit. That is that there's a man in the synagogue of all places, in the holy place, if you will, who's got an unclean demon. They say, well, do we really believe in demons? I mean, isn't this something that we can just rationalize away? I mean, what we, you know, they call the demon then, isn't this just uh, something now we have a diagnosis for? This is just a medical problem. But I think if we read the passage, you say, Luke's not saying that this is a medical issue, but rather someone who's been possessed by the enemy. And I think that if we probe a bit clearer, right, that we, we or think a bit more deeply about this, say we, we do, in certain instances, know that this can be true. So there have been a handful of times in my life where I've met someone and I say their issue's not, doesn't seem to be a psychological issue, it doesn't seem to be a physical issue, but there's something in the eyes, there's something in the way that they carry themselves, which is just a, a, a bit dark, as if it's, it's a, you know, just a, a bit off. And having grown up in the church, I've heard a number of testimonies of people who in their younger years would dabble in dark magic and uh, in drug use and be in that kind of environment. They would describe that as just being a place of great spiritual darkness, of not having all of their faculties together and the Lord Jesus rescued them out of that. And I think what we need to see is before we rationalize this away to say, well, actually psychology and medicine haven't solved all of the problems above the shoulders. If I can press this a bit further, Earlier in chapter 4, we were introduced to the character of Satan, at least in Luke's gospel. And remember, Satan is a leader of a rebellion against God, and while he's not co-equal with God, he's under God, he's been permitted to exercise authority. He and the other rebellious angelic beings are permitted for a time, even though Christ has conquered them, to exercise a little bit of authority on this earth 
and to move people away from God. That's uh, what they do. And I think that's where we wanted to come down on this. Say, what do Satan and demons really do? They oppose Jesus. So if you read again 31 to 37, what's really this demon about, right? He recognizes Jesus is his opponent. That Satan and the demonic angels, really what they're trying to do is to turn people away from God and turn people away from Jesus, right? They want us to start thinking about indulging our own appetites. Remember, we looked back again earlier in chapter 4 to start thinking about our own authority, to test God, to doubt God. That most of it's above the shoulders to try to get us to hate Jesus. And so if our view, as many, I think, might falsely have, is that the devil is this uh, little being with horns, and we say, well, he's not around Avon or anywhere in northeast Ohio and demons. You know, you think of the little image on your shoulder or something. Say, if that's our idea of Satan and demons, no wonder we don't really uh, take them seriously. But if, as we see in Luke's gospel, that what Satan and the demons are trying to do is to wage war on the human mind to doubt God, to hate Jesus, and to have human beings hate one another and to turn towards themselves, you must say that they're everywhere, that they're very successful. And in certain instances, they do uh, grip the mind and the body in particular ways. And what we see then in this first part is that Jesus liberates us from these dark spiritual influences that Jesus comes on the scene and it's rather easy for him and he casts out this demon, right? The demon recognizes who he is, that he's the chosen one of God, in fact, probably the creator of the demons himself. He recognizes who Jesus is and it's a very easy fight that Jesus very swiftly takes care of this demonic problem. Now I bring this a bit more into the present. As you try to unpack demonic influence, right? And it's very careful what words we use that I think demonic possession is different from demonic influence but I think there all are all kinds of what we would call depressions of spirit now I want to be very careful here because I think there most certainly is clinical depression that it's biologically certain that there are there's a chemistry in the body and all of us have different chemistry and the depression's a, a very a, a biological illness I'm not doubting that at all but I think for every one of us for Christians that there are things that come up in life, whatever they would be, circumstances, various things that so intimidate us and scare us, that we do feel, say, there's a bit of the dark issuing, coming in on my mind. There's a, a spiritual darkness pressing in, getting me to think about things, to doubt God, to, to doubt others, to think nasty things about other people. You feel that coming in. And I hope that those of us in Christ realize the great resource we have, we can call on the name of Jesus to push back that darkness. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm feeling some great spiritual oppression. <laughs> that all of a sudden I just feel incredibly intimidated by this or scared of this. And I'm, I'm, I'm really flustered and thrown off balance. Lord Jesus, I need you. It reminds me of that wonderful old hymn, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. You remember? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I've come back to that little refrain time and time again that sometimes that there are depressions of spirit that are so incredibly dark, that so depress our minds. You say, is this a dark force coming in? We're to remember to call on the name of Jesus because it's so easy for him. He exercises authority over these dark demons. And friends, if nothing else in this passage, let's realize there really is something at stake. 
that Satan and the demons want us to doubt God, to hate Jesus, and that that's going to continue on all of our lives, even those of us in Christ, right? Especially maybe those who, you know, the Bible says those who don't know Jesus are in the dark, right? That's a, they've been blinded by demons, blinded by Satan. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And this battle goes on all the days of our lives, but to remember when we feel that coming in, when we doubt God, and we're scared and intimidated by the things of the earth, to call on Jesus because he has real spiritual authority. Now, moving forward to verses 38 to 41, that not only is Jesus in authority over spiritual matters, uh, over the darkness, but Jesus has authority over our bodies. You know, this is quite controversial these days, isn't it? I mean, in the last couple of decades even, we've seen there's a strong swing to, to say that we have authority over our own bodies. In many ways, a lot of this recent legislation at the highest levels of our government and the Supreme Court and other places is really about who has authority over our bodies. And our temptation is to say that we want complete autonomy, but I think what happens, paradoxically, is that the further we go down that road of wanting to manipulate our bodies as we so choose, the more unstable we become because we realize we can't even trust our own bodies and that destabilizes us. And actually what would be most refreshing is to see if our bodies and our personhood is actually in the hand of our loving creator. And that's the impression we get here. So immediately after casting out this unclean spirit in the synagogue, Jesus moves on to Simon Peter's house where Simon Peter's mother-in-law is ill with a high fever. And by the way, that little phrase there in verse 38, very technical language in the Greek that most would say would come from a medical doctor. You remember Luke is a physician and this to be ill with a high fever is a technical medical phrase when we compare it to the other literature. I think once again verifying that we have something that's real history. Now what's happening here is that Jesus is showing us again that he is authoritative not only over spiritual matters, but over physical matters and even individual bodies. Now, here's what's interesting about this. At all the funerals that I've done, I try to bring this up, but if you know Psalm 90, Psalm 90 is said to be a psalm of Moses. So most of the psalms are written by David, but Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses, which would make it at least 400 years older than the psalms of David. So we're talking Psalm 90 is a 3,400-year-old text. That's a very old text. And remember what Moses says in Psalm 90. He says a person lives 70 to 80 years. And if you look at the life expectancy now in Northeast Ohio, it's about 80 years. And isn't that interesting that in 3,400 years of human history, that human beings live about the same length of time. And all of us try very, very hard to make those 80 years, we hope, as good as possible, to make it as comfortable as possible, to make it as pain-free as possible. And you say, well, I, I suppose that's good. What else would we do? But we fail to take the word eternity at what it means. Say, think about that. Say, we have this little portion of time, 80 years, but our souls, right, are, we're told, immortal. That we're going to live forever, right? Our, our personalities go on forever. We're promised a, a resurrection body. Even those who don't know Jesus will be raised, right? Raised to judgment. That it's not just the 80 earthly years that we have, but for all eternity, we, we're going to exist. That's what the Bible teaches. And I think we do sense that as well, right? We don't like the idea of 
just returning to the ground that all cultures, even other religions, have this sense of the afterlife. It seems to be deep with inside us. So we have 70 or 80 earthly years. That's the way it's been for a very, very, very long time. And then a much longer time, in fact, an eternal time. And every time a matter like this comes up in Scripture, I think we have to keep that perspective. Those of us who are in Christ, do we really think about eternity that much? Are we just like everybody else, kind of scrambling to make these 80 years as if this is all that there is? See, we're all on this continuum that stretches into eternity. And so we keep that in mind when it comes to healing. Now, what about healing? Remember that everyone who's in Christ will be healed. All of us who've put our faith in Jesus to say, God, we've rebelled against you, we've turned our own way, but I recognize you've made a way of reconciliation in the person of Jesus. And when I come to him as the sacrifice for my sins and I entrust my life to him, all those who said, Lord Jesus, I entrust myself to you by his grace, we've, we've committed to him, right? That he's demonstrated his love and we said, that's the one I need. All those who've done that said, we're promised to be healed in the resurrection. <laughs> You can just read Romans chapter 6, say all those in Christ will receive a new body, a whole body, wipe every tear from our eye, no more pain, that all of us are afflicted. I don't know anyone who's completely happy with their body on earth. And as we go, that it gets more and more tired and more and more run down, but one day every Christian will be healed. So what do we mean then when it comes to our earthly existence? Now, sometimes... God in his sovereignty, in his control over our bodies, works a miracle, as we would say that term. I've heard people that have a terrible diagnosis, a very small percentage chance of living, say, beyond two or five years. And the church begins to pray, and that person gets better beyond the best explanations of science and good medicine. And in those instances, which I would say have been rare, but enough to say that it does happen, God gives a temporary healing to our earthly body because we have more ministry to do here. That does happen. Other times, I think God heals us through the gifts of physicians. You know, I read Acts 17, and it says that God not only allots our times, that is, none of us can live beyond what God has ordained, but he also allots our places, and we find ourselves, or many of us, in Northeast Ohio, which is a great place to be if you're ill. <laughs> Say, with our leading clinics and hospitals say if you're going to be ill somewhere in the world I'll take my chances here remember learning of all the great diplomats of the world coming into Cleveland for heart surgery say God has put us here in a place where there's really good medicine and talking to some of the physicians even in our own congregation I think about what they get up and do every morning the things they're able to do are amazing Say, to them, it's not a miracle, but listening to go in and rework those organs and to take out the bad part and stitch the people back, I'd say, this is, it's unbelievable what God's given them the ability to do. And some, I know many non-Christians, they don't know the true God, but God uses them, uses non-Christians to bring about healing in the body in a way that's not been done before. And I hope that when I know Christians who've had major surgeries, they give great gratitude to the surgeon, but they also give great gratitude to God. God, thank you for giving me that physician. Thank you for allowing my body to heal in such a way. And I hope we see in that that God has control over our bodies. Now, at other times, God has us suffer so that his glory might be magnified. 
So many of us, if you look at Paul, the way that he writes in 2 Corinthians, that he has what he calls the thorn in the flesh, that he prays routinely, say, God, I would really love it if you took away this painful thing in my life. Would you please alleviate what I'm enduring? And Paul receives an answer. You remember what it was. He said, Paul, you're going to remain weak in this area because in your weakness, I demonstrate my strength. And I say, that is a really beautiful thing when you see it. Those in our church family who deal with chronic pain, I'm sure they prayed many times. I wish it wasn't the case, but God in that life, right, as they proclaim and live out and stay faithful to the gospel, they really authenticate the message. And we say, wow, look at that. God's power and glory are displayed in that person in human weakness, that they're not healed, but in their not being healed, God's majesty is displayed. I hope you know a few examples of that. And then lastly, say others on our standards die prematurely. That for whatever reason, we have people younger than 70 or 80 years that are called home. And I only say this, that as we look at Jesus coming in and exercising authority over Simon Peter's mother-in-law, say God is in control of our bodies. He's in control of our health. He knows what he's doing for all those in Christ. His timing is perfect, and we need not be afraid. You know, when I was a young clergyman at my old church, I had two key mentors, and they... um, were 25 years apart in age, but died uh, very close together. That one was 59 years old that had a sarcoma in his back, a soft tissue cancer, and the other one at 84 years old. I remember from one point of view, I thought, wow, that 25 years, that's a really long time. 59 is just way too young to die, is what you'd think. But then you say, well, take that in light of eternity and take that in light of what Scripture teaches, right? God knows what he's doing. He's allotted our times and places. Say, that 25 years in the scheme of, yeah, is it it sad now? Do we wish others could still be with us a bit longer? Absolutely we do, but we have the hope of the raised body that all those in Christ will be healed. And friends, this is so important. You know, I'm making a list of all the, the gifts that the virus has brought us. And I think in a, in, a, in a way, one of the gifts that it's delivered to us moderns is to say that actually we really are intimidated by the prospect of death. And I don't mean we so much as a church, I mean we moderns. That if nothing else, doesn't this virus say people really don't want to die? There really is an insecurity there. We don't want to die young. That as much as we kind of want to dismiss these concept of maybe being outside of what we normally like to talk about, say it's still there. It's still a universal question. What's going to happen when I die? I really don't want to die. I want to stay on a little bit longer. Say that should point us to Christ. Say, friends, we don't want to test God. We don't want to be reckless with our bodies. That was the lesson that we learned a few weeks ago in the temptations. But I also hope that those of us who are in Christ see that he's sovereign over our bodies. We don't need to be afraid and that he knows what he's doing and he works in our bodies in all kinds of different ways. And in this instance, he demonstrates his power by healing Simon's mother-in-law. Now also Jesus in this instance, don't you love it that he's not showing off? He's in a private home and it's repeatable. He does it time and time again. So Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. There's a war going on 
and the demons and Satan are trying to get us to dismiss Jesus and not think about God. And he's been quite successful. Jesus is authority in authority over those dark powers. Jesus is also an authority over physical matters such as our bodies as he cured the fever. Now, where is Jesus' real authority? And you see it in those first two, that it's in his words. It's in his preaching. You notice verses 31 and 32. What does Jesus immediately begin to do? He was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. And then notice, how does he actually handle that demon in verses 35 and 36? He handles that demon with his words. What is this word that has such authority to people? Where is this power coming from his words? And how does he handle the fever in verse 39? He rebukes the fever. He does it with his voice. Say, friends, the real authority, if you will, in Jesus is in his word. It's in the proclamation of what God has done in Jesus. They say it's not by force or violence that Jesus moves. It's not by subjective experience that this person says this and this person says that, and you can never really pen it down. It's not by building consensus in a majority. No, the authority of Jesus comes in the proclamation of what God has done through him and in him to bring about his kingdom. And you notice about Jesus' words here. I think anyone who reads this or would have read it uh, back 2,000 years ago, you're going to know a few things, that Jesus' word works here immediately. The demon is cast out immediately. The fever is rebuked. Most of us, when we have a fever, it drains us. Not in this instance. Peter's mother-in-law gets up and serves them. That Jesus' word is swift. There's real power there. It's not by charms. Say so I think that's the other thing, too, is that other healers in the ancient world, say so there's kind of a lot of stories of healers in the ancient world, but they always had to do bizarre things. You had to go cut out a weird part of an animal or do something for several days and rub something on your skin, say all kinds of records of that, not with Jesus. It's just his word. Fever, be gone. You see how different that is? Then how about the way Jesus says it? You know, all of us think we maybe you know about how the rabbis worked. The rabbis are the other Jewish teachers, and you know the way rabbinical law worked, right? That the rabbinical law worked. Well, Rabbi Hillel said this, and Rabbi Gamaliel said this, and you just kind of, uh, the tradition of what other rabbis said was the way you ought to do things. And you say, Jesus doesn't speak like the other rabbi. He says, I say that he's a real authority. You know, I think the way that our laws work, right? That you study previous cases. That's not the way Jesus' word works. He says, I say, and there's real authority in the preaching. You know, there's a lot of temptation, it would seem, in some circles of our faith, of the Christian faith, to be marveling at the acts of healing and the experience that Jesus gives, and we neglect the truth of his word. And I hope we see in a passage like this, Luke wants us to be very clear, right? Jesus says at the end, right? I must preach. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. This preaching in the synagogues, this is the purpose for which I was sent, that the emphasis is on the truth of Jesus's words and what God has done through him, that we don't want to get sidetracked by experiences as much as we might be interested in them, but really it's about the plain truth of Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. There we have it for the very first time in verse 43, right? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. What's the core of Jesus' message? That God is reconciling 
his people to himself through the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. And in 2,000 years, say that is our message. Why is it every week that we sing the word of God and that we say the word of God together and then we study the word of God and in our small groups, we apply and think more about the word of God because the power, right? The authority is in Jesus's words from the scripture. That's the life-changing truth, not the merely temporal things, but we must see that the temporal things are pointing us to the eternal truths in the life-changing message of his preaching, that Jesus is this focal point of history, and it's in his message where the power resides. Now, it's not just, I know what some of you are saying, well, does that mean it's just for the, are you kind of boosting yourself because you're the preacher here? Not at all. That a healthy church requires every member of the church to have a comprehension of the true message of Jesus, to share that and build one another up and then to take it out into the world that we all must be preachers and proclaimers of this word, not of our own, but the words of Jesus. There is authority in Jesus's words. And then, and then lastly, I know we have to wind it down here, but in verse 41, you see something odd, that again, the demons are coming. Uh, Jesus is ca- casting them out. He rebukes them. He speaks uh, to them and in a word they flee. And then notice this, but he He warned them not to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, this can be very confusing. Say, why does Jesus, early in his ministry, silence people and demons from saying that he's the Christ? I mean, I remember reading this when I'm young. I say, isn't that the whole point? I mean, that's what we just said, that we're supposed to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Here's the point, is that the authority of Jesus over our spiritual lives, the authority of Jesus over our bodily, physical lives, the authority of Jesus in his life-saving message is an assault on human pride. That whenever we hear in our rebellion that actually we're not belonging to ourselves, that I don't have dominion over my own body and my own life, it's not just out there for me to go my own way, but actually I'm accountable to the authority of Jesus. Say That offends our pride. And it always brings about, I think, a reaction in us, even those of us deep down, say we were against the struggle of ourselves against Jesus to say, am I in allegiance to myself or is there a higher power? And that's what's happening here, that Jesus recognizes that him being the Christ and him claiming authority gets a lot of people upset. And before there be an insurrection, he's waiting for just the right time, as we're going to see. And it's back to the words of Simeon in chapter 2 that we looked at at Christmas time. What does Simeon say? Takes the baby Jesus. This this baby is going to divide the people. And friends, I turn to you today. Say, some listening to this, you've not really entrusted your life to the authority of Jesus. Say, yeah, you're exercising authority in this world, and maybe you have had that experience of being on the sinking sand. You're kind of outdoing, and and I, I pray today, you say, well, there is an authority, and you come to Jesus and see what's offered in him, that in his message and in that proclamation, there is life and hope and truth, rest, and you can say today, say, Lord, I want to come to you because my eyes have been opened. I don't want to live in blindness. Even the demons know who Jesus is. Then on the other hand, say most of us are Christians. And I hope we realize that as we go through this life and we can be scared by a lot of things, spiritual depressions, worried about our bodies, worried about illnesses, getting uh, led by all kinds of different messages that we come back to this. Say, where's the real authority? What is this word with authority, right? I think that's where the title of the sermon comes from. Verse 36, what is this word with authority? 
Oh, it's the message of what God has done in Jesus. I can rest in that. Not only is it an example for me, but it's the source of strength as I go forward, the source of strength in my own life as I exercise my responsibilities. So that being said, may we take refuge. Jesus is in control over spiritual matters. He's in control over physical matters. The real power is in his word, and we expect opposition in our own souls and as we take this message beyond. So, uh, Lord Jesus, we pray now. Father, thank you for your authoritative word in Jesus that we're not just kind of floating around here for 70 or 80 years trying to do our best and trying to author ourselves. But what you've done, you've demonstrated real authority. That, Lord, I pray for those in our church body right now who would be suffering from what I would call spiritual depression, that there's just a darkness, a doubt about you, your goodness, uh, creating a wedge between uh, other Christians, perhaps, and that we would see we can call on the name of Jesus to cast out that darkness. And Lord, I pray in other instances that we, we've prayed already today that there are some who are physically ill. And Lord, we do pray that um, if it is your will, that they would be healed temporally, but also that we would all rest, all of us, to say, well, let's look at the truth in light of eternity. That's what your word says. And does not that help us grapple with these times and help us too while so many, so many are thinking about death and dying and what that means and illness, that we'd say, well, actually, if you're in Jesus, you're promised to be healed. There's a new resurrection body. And Lord, not to be sidetracked on those temporal things, but to never give up on the purpose of Jesus' coming, which is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. May we never sacrifice that. May we all do it well, not just the people up front, but each person to faithfully teach and preach and share the good news of Jesus. So we commit this time to you. Help it sink in. In Christ's name, amen.
Cause our fate to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let the truth prevail over unbelief. Build your key. 
Jesus tells his followers, the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us and he has all authority. Now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, honor, dominion, and authority through all the ages. Amen. <laughs> 